welcome to Mostly Books Meets. I'm Sarah. I'm Imogen. And I'm Lindsay. And together we are the team at Mostly Books, an award-winning independent bookshop. In this podcast series, we'll be speaking to authors, journalists, poets, and a range of professionals from the world of publishing. We'll be asking about the books that are special to them, from childhood favourites to the book that changed their life. And we hope you'll join us for the journey. Hey, it's Sarah. In this week's podcast, I'm talking to the world-renowned best-selling author, Heather Morris. In 2003, Heather was introduced to a man who, she was told, might just have a story worth telling. The day she met Lale Sokolov changed both their lives. Their friendship grew whilst Lali entrusted the innermost details of his life during the Holocaust to Heather. She took Lali's story and after originally writing it as a screenplay, adapted it into her debut novel, The Tattooist of Auschwitz. The book was a huge success and her second book, Silver's Journey, was published last year. Since being published, The Tattooist of Auschwitz has sold over 6 million copies and Heather's first non-fiction title, Stories of Hope, is published today. Heather, welcome to Mostly Books Meets. Hello. Thank you so much, Sarah. It's wonderful to be talking to you again. Now, it doesn't seem like five minutes ago since we were last in touch. We were just saying before hitting record that we've spoken a couple of times previously. One when Tattooist had only recently come out and you did a Zoom event with some of our local high school students. And that seems like five minutes ago. And what kind of what an event you've been on since then? Oh, yes. And still riding it too. <laughs> right. So let's, let's get an idea of who you are. So if you wouldn't mind, we'll go right back to your childhood um, in New Zealand, where you were born in a small town in the North Island. And I understand you were the only girl of five children. Tell me what life was like. Uh, yeah. Look, I suppose I grew up being a bit of a tomboy. I mean, living on a rural property and with four brothers, uh, there was not much choice or not many options to play with dolls and put on pretty dresses. I don't think I had any anyway. But, um, you know, when you reflect on it and you look back, it was, it was pretty okay. It was pretty okay. We wanted for nothing, but then we never really wanted much. So, um, yeah, and we're going back a few years now. <laughs> and were you a big reader as a child? I'm, look, I was, but I didn't have access to the kind of books, of course, that uh, we have now, or even a lot of my contemporaries back in different situations in New Zealand and elsewhere would have had. We didn't have libraries uh, that I could access. And uh, my parents thought that all we needed to know and, and all we should read could be found in like Encyclopedia Britannica. I loved it because to me, it just took me on these amazing journeys and uh, exotic faraway places and people that just seemed so much better than my existence in this tiny little village. Yeah, when you're in that kind of situation everywhere else in the world, if you're in a small town, I did the same. I grew up in a village. Everything else seems so much more exciting, doesn't it? And if you have a window into other places, that's that's a great thing. And there was no television. I saw television for the first time, and I'm really dating myself here. <laughs> but I think I was about 13. So I didn't have television uh, as another a resource either. So it literally was Encyclopedia Britannica. And to uh, see the, the pyramids in Egypt and parts of Africa and all these beautiful, exotic foreign places, like I said. Yeah, I couldn't wait to get out of there. And I subsequently did. <laughs> 
So what was the first book you remember reading? Was it Encyclopedia Britannica or was it something else? Well, that's not one that you kind of read per se. And so when it comes to storylines, you know, I really do remember, sadly, first year of school, if not the year before. We never had kindergarten or anything like that. We just went straight to school. And um, we had these books called Jack and Jack and Jill. It sounds like a nursery rhyme. Yeah. But to me, the, the book that remains with me, it was a series of books, and I think I was probably given them when I was well, five or six, and they were, and you'll understand when I've been talking about Encyclopedia Botanica, why they appealed to me, The Adventures of Madeleine, the little girl in Paris, oh, how I wanted to be her, and I wanted to live where she lived. And um, I devoured those stories, and they remain with me very fresh, and I now well, I gave them to my daughter and uh, and also my sons and now my grandchildren, I read them to them because I think they're timeless. Yeah, they are, and they're amazing, actually. We we still sell a few of those in the shop even today by Ludwig Bellemans. Yeah, we have, um, we have a couple of customers similar to yourself who grew up reading them and then want to pass on to the next generation. It's wonderful to have stories that are so timeless. Yes, indeed. So that would be the first uh, book slash books that I remember, and you've got to remember that, I have to remember a long way back. <laughs> okay, so let's bring us back to let's bring us up to current day. Um, you're living in Australia now, is that correct? Yes, in Melbourne. And what's life like in Melbourne? Um, very sad right now, and uh, well, it is everywhere in the world, I know, but Melbourne, as opposed to the rest of Australia, is in full lockdown with uh, COVID nineteen, and I'm restricted to five kilometres from my home. And only one hour allowed outside my property per day. There are no shops open. Um, and, uh, yes, and while the rest of the country are dining in restaurants and drinking in bars and having a good old time, we here in Melbourne are, are doing it tough. Oh, that's horrible. Yeah. It's been such a strange time, hasn't it? We, we only started this podcast recently, so all of our episodes have been, have been recorded during lockdown. It's been really interesting talking to, about different people's experiences. Have you? Has there been any point during the last few months where Melbourne's been out of lockdown or have you been in it since the beginning? Uh, no, we were in it. Then we came out of it. Didn't come out of it totally. Um, you know, they've got these stage levels that we have, four, three, two, one. We never got, to, I think, even to two. And um, so we had about six weeks of a little taste of freedom with a few shops open and being able to catch up with somebody and have five people that you could be in contact with. And then we've gone back down to, to zero, nothing. Yeah, the first time around, and what I'm trying to observe, and and that's from just seeing people on the street who are walking their dog, we can only walk around our streets and we try and keep our distance. And uh, listening to Talkback Radio and the, the media, first time around, there was an incredible community pull together. And uh, it was just amazing to see people wanting to help neighbours and um, leaving food outside people's doors and knocking on them and running away. And the kindness that this whole town and city was showing to everyone was amazing. And it seems like second time round, that's not there. And oh, no, really? Because that was one of the absolutely lovely parts of... Um that we, we experienced over here as well, the community the community pull and everyone coming together. I, yeah. I guess the, the issue is everyone's finding it increasingly more difficult, aren't they? Yes, um, I'm told by the experts and that 
if you had to go through a second lockdown, which we in Melbourne have had to, that the compliance and the understanding by those put in lockdown would not be the same. Uh, yeah, we, we felt like we did the right thing and um, a few people didn't and now five million of us are having to pay the price and you're wanting to blame somebody and that wasn't their first time around. No. Um, how are you filling your time? Are you are you writing? Are you reading? Are you doing other things? What are you doing with your time? Uh, a lot of talking to people like you. One of the things about <laughs> not being able to travel is I have to do um, yeah, Zoom, Skype, Team, uh, what Zcaster, all these platforms that I've now been introduced to because I'm releasing a book during a pandemic and not being able to promote it the way I have in the past it means that I am actually still very, very busy just in front of my own laptop. Tell, tell us about your new book, it's Stories of Hope, yeah? Stories of Hope. Look, I'm just so delighted with this book. It's one thing to have written uh, two historical fiction books, but um, this one is a little bit more personal and I've had to reveal a little bit more about myself in writing this and that took a bit of courage on my part, if I can say that because I don't normally share very much about my private life. But my, my publishers and I, gosh, this time last year, we knew what the third book would be about, third uh, fiction book would be. But they asked me what I like to consider before I wrote that, writing a nonfiction book. And we came to this and, and the story behind it from the thousands and thousands of readers who read The Tattooist and Silka and wrote to me. You know, they wrote telling me the most amazing stories of their own. I'm not talking stories that uh, would need to be turned into any kind of book or even short stories, but stories of going through something traumatic or tragic and finding Lully's story and the hope that they got from just reading about him and Silka and Gita and the other Holocaust survivors. And that word hope kept coming up in every single email. And we looked at those and we went, what is it that these unknown people to me felt like writing to me and sharing so much? And I respond to them, engage with them. And funnily enough, I discovered that when I was actually reading their emails, I thought that I wasn't just reading them, I was listening to them. And I said that to my publisher one day. I said, you know, I put faces to these people who write to me and I, I've sort of visualised their, their room that they're in and I, I think I'm listening to what they're saying and that's when they came up to it. Write a book about listening because that's what Stories of Hope is. It's about listening. Yeah, because I'm sure when you started out on your journey with the Tattooist of Auschwitz, the last thing you thought was going to happen was that you would end up in this situation where you know, hundreds and probably thousands of people have got in touch mm. to talk about their own experiences. Oh, absolutely. That totally floored me. I've been reading books for decades and um, I'm kind of embarrassed to say that I've never written to an author ever. I've written reviews on other books I've, I've read on yeah, small social media platforms and whatever, but I've never written to the author and said thank you. And don't I feel remiss about that? Because here you are 
writing to me and your thousands from so many different countries. You know, many of the emails, I have to go and put them into Google Translate and read what it is you're writing to me. It's simply amazing and very, very overwhelming at times. It must be. It must be strange going to a country that you maybe hadn't visited before and then knowing people there have read your book and, and know Lalo's story. And oh, It is. It's all of those things and more. I'd, um, I'm just so touched that the number of people who want to come and not only will listen to me, and they want to talk to me as well. And that's wonderful. I know that many of the events I've done have uh, gone way beyond the time that they were scheduled to because of the people wanting to actually talk to me. And guess what? I'm always going to listen. Oh, I remember that from our event last year. The uh, I remember the book signing queue is one of the, the longest queues we've ever had. But it was it was great. It was great to see so many people chatting to you about your book. Couldn't agree more. When you were writing this book, obviously this is this is very different to your fiction books. Did it kind of evolve quite naturally? How did how did it actually come to fruition? Did you sit down and make a conscious decision to start writing it, or did it just kind of happen? Look, it kind of just sort of happened. Initially, I thought, well, the, the easiest thing for me to do would be to write about listening to Lully. Now, while you've uh, heard me talking about him and my relationship with him, uh, many, many people haven't. And uh, it occurred to me that when I am talking and giving talks, it's not the same as when I first was promoting the books and the people I was meeting hadn't read it yet. But now when I've talked to people, they don't want me to talk about the book. They've read the book. But they want to talk about my time with him. And so it seemed a natural thing to do was to start writing, listening to Lully. And then I went, yeah, he wasn't the first person I listened to. And so I went back and I started thinking, who was that person? And it came to me in a flash. I knew who it was. It was my great-grandfather. Uh, who lived two paddocks away from where I lived. And uh, you asked about my childhood and the small town I lived in. Well, can I say that um, I never felt listened to by anybody growing up. I was in that era of children were to be seen and not heard. But the one exception was my great-grandfather. And every afternoon after school, I would stop off and sit on the veranda with him. And he would tell me stories of his life I would listen. And he told me the importance of listening. And sometimes we'd just say, we're just going to sit here today and listen. And I'd go, what, what are we listening to, Gramps? And he'd say, everything and nothing. You suddenly heard the birds. You heard the, the cows being rounded up and the dogs yapping at their heels. I heard my mother two paddocks away yelling at my brothers. So that then became a whole chapter on listening to your elders. And how much can you learn by just listening? People don't have to have had these amazing lives and achieved greatness to be extraordinary people. Everybody's life is remarkable. Yeah, I totally agree. It's it's one of my favourite parts of the job that I do. Um, obviously, we see new people in the shop every day, but equally we get to know a lot of the customers that we see day in, day out, week in, week out. And a lot of people, you start chatting to them and you kind of, you wouldn't have any expectation about where their life's been or, or what they've done. And and then you find out they've had these wonderful, amazing, interesting lives. Yeah. And it's, it's just fascinating. 
Yeah, so that's why we then came up with chapters. Well, if I'm going to write about listening to your elders, I better go to the other end of the spectrum and write about listening to children. And uh, yeah, one of the things that, because I felt I wasn't listened to as a child, I made a conscious effort to not be that same parent. I think I did an okay job um, listening to my children, though when I told them I was writing this chapter, they, well, three of them laughed at me and said, <laughs> yeah, right, what have your qualifications for that? Um, but um, the fact that we all still talk to each other, I think, means that we, I did listen somewhere along the line. And we, we don't always listen to children. We, we kind of hear them. And I, I read this lovely quote that said, if you don't listen to your children when they're young and they're telling you the small things, don't expect them when they become teenagers and you want to know what's going on in their lives. Don't expect them to tell you because when they were young and telling you things, they were big things to them then. And um, I think that's a, a wonderful way of looking at what children are saying. And I'm so lucky to have amazing little grandchildren. I get to do it all again. That's fantastic. So obviously you said you're really busy at the moment with um, promoting the book, letting people know about mm -hmm. it, albeit sat in front of a computer this time rather than getting on flights, which is what you normally do. Yep. Are you managing to take any time out? Are you managing to read for relaxation? Um, well, yes and no. Here's the thing. The last, I suppose, 12 months or more, I've had many requests from unpublished uh, manuscripts from different publishing companies in many countries to uh, read these uh, unpublished manuscripts before they, they go to the printers to see if I will comment. So I'm incredibly lucky to be given firsthand uh, novels and both the fiction and nonfiction and get to read them before you do, before you even know they exist. But I have just finished the latest David Baldacci book, okay? I squeezed that in. He's brilliant. I love his books. Mm -hmm. um, I heard him speak at the London Book Fair, I think it was last year, and I'm, I'm, I've always been a huge fan. So uh, it was good to hear him in person. Oh, I'm jealous. <laughs> Um, you, you, when we were messaging before our interview today, you were saying you actually did a book launch, uh, I think it was yesterday, with Christina ba Baker, is that? Yes, Christina Baker-Klein, American author. She's written her, her latest book. She's internationally best-selling author in, this, in the US, and she's written a story about the female English convicts that were brought out to Australia uh, here and um, we woven in with that a story of a young Aboriginal girl uh, who really existed. This is back in 1840, and uh, when I first got the book to read, I kind of went, "Oh, this is this going to be a problem. This could be an issue." Right now, we have, uh, uh, I think, here in Australia and probably many countries, concerns about uh, people writing stories of which they have no connection to that whole cultural appropriation the discussion that's going on and with regard to the indigenous people in australia it's quite a big deal that any person who's not indigenous attempt to write their stories for them but can i say that christina has done an amazing job she came and spent so much time here in australia her research is impeccable and um, I think she'll have no trouble whatsoever with this incredible book she's written called The Exiles. Excellent. So that was a virtual book launch earlier today. Yeah, and it was, here's the thing too, it was, um, it was being sponsored by a winery and everybody in the, in the US who was tuned into it, it was their evening. 
And I was said to me, you know, could you possibly have a glass of wine with you as well and be part of it? It went for an hour and a half and have drinkies with us while we, you know, launch this book. And so, <laughs> hey, sounds good to me. It's been a long time since I've been uh, drinking at 9.30 in the morning, but there you go. <laughs> That's brilliant. The things you have to do. Yes. You have to do these things. <laughs> it's a tough life. <laughs> And one thing I always like to ask people about, especially people that write books, is um, I feel like everyone has a book that they really remember reading that, that has impacted their life or changed their life in some way. Do you have a book like that? And if you do, what, what book is it? You know, there, there are two books when I was thinking about this um, earlier. The, the books that I think changed my life in terms of let me know and, or reinforced in me that I did not have to be the person who I think my mother at least thought I was born to be, and that was to follow in her footsteps. I'm a fifth-generation New Zealander, and every woman in my family they, uh, had married locally and bred and stayed within the community. I had my grandmother two paddocks away from me, my great-grandmother another couple of paddocks away from me, the aunts, it was as if no female in my family history, could I see, had moved beyond this very small circle. And I complained one day. I remember uh, I was a bullshit little kid, probably came from having had brothers. And one day in the classroom, the school I went to only had two classrooms. And I complained once about girls being invisible. I thought that the teacher, when he asked the question, he only ever gave boys a chance to answer. And so I pointed this out to him and um, how the, the, uh, we were invisible. We had no role models. And, you know, he came back the next day and he gave me a book. And he said, here, read this and keep it. It was the first memoir I ever read. I actually didn't know it was called a memoir. I only know that now. And it was about uh, Madame Marie Curie. Oh, fabulous. And when I read about her and how she had achieved so much in a male-dominated world and I was living in a very male-dominated world, then I knew that, uh, yeah, there was going to be no borders that would uh, keep me in. So that was that was your inspiration. Do you think it helped drive you in your life then as, as you moved on? Oh, absolutely. As soon as I was able to leave school and get a job and save money, then I, I left that town, um, left the country even. I wouldn't even go to a bigger city I couldn't, there was no work where I lived. I mean, I had to go into another town. But I, um, yeah, to me, it wasn't even a matter of going up to Auckland or Wellington, the biggest city in New Zealand. I'm, I'm getting out of Dodge altogether. And so I, <laughs> I fled to Australia. And yeah, it was that. You went back again for a while, didn't you? Is that right? You, you were in Australia for a while, then you went back to New Zealand, then you mm. came back again. Absolutely. I was here, and this is where I met my husband. And um, before we had children, he was wanting to make the break from being in the town that he'd grown up in. I said, for, and he wanted to go back to New Zealand. We'd gone back there to get married, and he just loved it. And I said, well, if we're going to go back to New Zealand, we're going to the South Island. We're not going anywhere where I know I've got relatives. And, <laughs> and he agreed. So we went down to Christchurch, and we lived in Christchurch for about 14 years and three children. And, um, yeah, then he got headhunted to come to Australia. And uh, so we came back here. I'm flexible. I'll live anywhere. I was going to say, well, they're both pretty amazing places, so not not a bad situation to be in flipping between the two countries. True. 
Just out of interest, do you remember the name of the teacher that, that gave you that book? I do. I called him Mr. Jackson. Uh, his first name was Athel. I love that. I love talk when I've been talking to people about their books, especially books of the childhood. It's always so inspiring to me when people refer to their, their teachers, especially when you're really young. It, it just says yeah. it just reinforces that message, doesn't it, about the importance of teachers? And I, I think given what's happened in the last few months, I think everyone's really appreciating teachers. Much oh more. yeah, no one more so than my daughter. But her homeschooling is ruining her life. I have full sympathy with anyone that has had to do it. I, I think it's probably one of the hardest things. The other question I like to ask people is, is there a book that you think everyone should read? Look, if you had have asked me that question a few weeks ago, only a few weeks ago, I probably would have given you a different answer to what I'm going to give you today. But I'm going to tell Ooh, you. Pass off the press. Yeah, you don't even know this book exists. Well, you, you, I don't think you will. Or you might have seen some flyers over there because it's um, being published in, in the UK. But it's a book that I had the privilege of reading uh, only a couple of well, four or five weeks ago. And, you know, it's probably the first book in decades. But I said to myself one night, oh, I think I'll sit down and I'll start this about 7.30 one night. And I never went to bed until I'd finished it. And that's oh, wow. pretty rare for me. But, uh, yeah, you, you can't leave it. It really is that good. It's a memoir. Here's the thing too. It's a memoir, but... Wow, the writing. So there are two people you've, I have to acknowledge their brilliance, that the man whose life it's about and who really is telling the story. And um, his name is Benjamin French. I'm not even sure how to say that. But the book, when you see it and you hear about it, is called Parting Words, Nine Lessons for a Remarkable Life. Now, this man, he's 100 years old right now. And... Um, Here's that word remarkable. My goodness, if uh, I was to be judged by this man and the remarkable life he's led, I would be found wanting, but he would not see it that way. He was a young man who immigrated, poor immigrant from uh, Transylvania to uh, New York, but just this incredible life of giving. And in giving, he gave because he got himself educated at Harvard, of all things, he became a very decorated World War II soldier and then he decided that justice needed to be served for people who didn't have access to it. He was one of the first lawyers, actually, that took part in the, the, um, the Nazi war crimes in Germany uh, and he became a human rights lawyer of incredible standing. Started the international you know, criminal court. I could go on on about this man. He is just so inspiring and so funny to boot. Oh, really? Yeah, he got a wicked sense of humour and it comes out in his story. But here's the thing, the person who's written his story with him, a, a journalist in London called Nadia Komani, I think I'm saying her name right, I think she was with The Guardian, not sure if she still is. This man's life could fill volumes. She has condensed it down to less than 200 pages. And the brilliance of how she's condensed it uh, is just wonderful because you end up relating to this man and his, his life. And these lessons, they are simple little lessons, folks. It's called, you know, one of the chapters is like, dare to dream. You must dream. Always be kind. And they are these really simple lessons 
can be extrapolated to everyone's life. You do not have to be as remarkable as Benny. He calls himself Benny is. So, yeah, look for it. Yeah, I will do. It sounds fantastic. Do you know how it came into being? Yes, look, um, she writes that in her introduction. I think she saw a little article about this man because so he's, he's 100 and he's still you know, going strong. He is still, look, he's, he's um, given, been on panels in the Senate and all these important places in, in America for human rights. And I think she read a little article about him and then she was watching a documentary about the war crimes, the Nazi war crimes, and saw that the same man that she'd seen as a 100-year-old was actually one of the lawyers uh, and, and what well, in fact the original lawyer and the, the war crimes and she sought him out I think he's in Florida he, he lives in Florida and so she hunted him down and uh, persuaded him that his story should be put to, to paper so well done Nadia you said earlier on people approach you with manuscripts and, and pre-published books but I imagine there's quite a lot that come to you in the kind of the second world war historical fiction or historical mm. fact genre is that correct uh absolutely um uh, and many that aren't i'm not sure why i'm certainly no expert in anything but i just love reading and i'm pretty happy to be able to say this is an amazing tale and i'm saying that about benny's book trust me um, and there have been many others i was not asked to quote for christina's book uh, the exiles i read that after it had gone to the printers it, it, shut, it came out last week in the u.s uh, but, uh, yeah, somebody there just said that we could be two people who might hit it off in terms of launching her book and being the mo- I was the moderator for her, and we did. Fantastic. Who would have thought, Heather, four or five years ago that today you'd be here doing this? You've got an amazingly varied life and career, haven't you? You, you know, The Tattooist of Auschwitz was a huge success. Silka's Journey was was also a brilliant book and um, sold well for us, and and it's exciting that you've got this first non-fiction title coming out. Yeah, yeah. Who who would have thought? Indeed. What are your plans for after this? I mean, obviously, you're going to have your publicity for the the current book, and hope that goes very well. But I imagine there's there's something else on the horizon. There, there always is, isn't there? Oh, there is, and um, I'm working on it now. And in fact, I started working on it twelve months ago in terms of uh, coming to the story. Well, the story came to me, and my being absolutely grabbing it with both hands and the publisher saying absolutely we want this story and it has needed me to travel a couple of times to Israel because that's where the story is that's where the story is right now it's not where it's going to all take place and um yes now I can concentrate on that now that stories is good it's it's all printed it's sitting on my desk right in front of me I'm looking at it so this next story which will be out this time next year and um it's another fiction historical fiction so it's the same concept in the fact that it's a work of fiction but it's based on true lives is that correct yes yes three sisters so three three young girls uh, whose again remarkable lives are worthy in my opinion anyway of writing how three young girls you know 15 17 and 19 could survive and endure what they did you know not only during the holocaust but uh, subsequent to that and being rejected back in their home country of Czechoslovakia and trained to be freedom fighters and go to Palestine and you know become freedom fighters for the state of Israel and, and two of the two of the sisters are still alive then 94 and 96 years of age oh wow so you've been you've met with them and you've been talking to them amazing yes yeah, so a couple of times I've been into Tel Aviv and spent time with them and I needed to go back and of course I can't 
So fingers crossed. I'm just waiting for this vaccine. Hurry up. You and me both. So with your two previous books, with The Tattooist and Silka's Journey, obviously they were interlinked because for people that don't know, although I think most people do now, Silka was somebody, was a character that we met in The Tattooist of Auschwitz. Is this new book a complete standalone or does it have links with, with your two previous books? Look, it's, it's standalone, but here's why I got it, because it does have a link. I, I don't think that there's any problem in telling you how I got it. I, I was actually in South Africa this time last year, and I got an email one night when I was there when I read it. It was from a man who lives in Canada, and he just wrote telling me that he had uh, picked up my book at the Toronto airport as he was flying to Tel Aviv to visit his mother, and she left it on her coffee table after he'd been there a couple of days. He was reading it. And his mother had walked past, looked down at the title. And the Canadian title book cover is the same as Australian. It's the one with the arms and the numbers, yeah. Lully and Gita tattooed on, on the arms. And his mother walked past and looked at the book, picked it up and said, that must be about Lully and Gita. Oh, my goodness. Exactly. And so long story short, and about the only amount I'm allowed to tell you, is that she and her two sisters came from the same town as Gita. They were on the same train as Gita going to Auschwitz. Their numbers are two and three apart from Gita's. They remembered Lully tattooing them. And subsequently, because they now live in Israel and have done for decades, uh, Gita had visited them in Israel and stayed with one of the sisters and kept in touch. So, yeah, go figure. Wow. Oh, that's amazing. The fact that... She wasn't even the one that picked up the book and then just happened to see it. That's that's wonderful. Oh, absolutely. And um, so thrilled because if I had have known about them in advance, of course they could have been in, in um, the tattoo with the Nali and Gita story and in Silkers because you know, they were these three sisters were there and that they survived. Uh, wow, pretty amazing to have three sisters from one family. Yeah, fantastic. Well, I look forward to so reading that when it appears next year. But before then, obviously, we have your, your new book, which I'm really excited about getting into our shop. Thank you. Um, have you got more of the more of the same plan? Are you having lots more conversations over the next few weeks with people in the UK and people around the world? Uh, yes, I am. And also in Australia. At some point, I must start promoting it down here too or flogging it, as we tend to say in Australia. Are you flogging your book? <laughs> it's uh, coming out a couple of weeks later here, not to the end of this month. Uh, so we'll deal with all you beautiful people in the UK first. Oh gosh, I miss not being there. To not be able to just wander into the BBC and have a chat on radio into Ireland and Scotland and Wales. Yeah, it really is a change because the response to your visit last year was was astounding. Like I say, um, the, the visit to our town was brilliant. And I think just yeah. generally across the UK, there was a lot of interest in you being here. But uh, the time will come again at some point. So we'll look forward mm-hmm. to that. Absolutely. Thank you so much for your time today. I know you're so busy and I really, really appreciate you coming on to chat to us today and uh, letting us know about some of your books. As I said, your your book's being published on the 17th of September here in the UK, and I'm sure it will do incredibly well. Heather Morris, thank you so much. Stories of hope. Find the hope.